Glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and we are continuing this morning our journey through the New Testament book of James. So let me encourage you here at the outset, if you've got a Bible or you use your phone or your iPad or, or whatever mechanism you use to get there, if you want to make your way to James chapter 1, I'm going to meet you there in just a minute. But as you get there, I want to read something to you that I read this week in a book that I try to go back through at least once or twice a year. And every time I do, it, it always illuminates something else to me. And I've read it before, but maybe I missed it or it just didn't sit on me. And this week, as I was looking back at this book, something else stood out at me. And it stood out, stood out at me directly in relation to this, to this series going through James. And so I want to share it with you here in the beginning. But the writer is setting up a, his argument in the chapter where he's looking at what it means for us distinctively as human beings to be created in the image and likeness of of God. I mean, what makes us distinct in that sense? And one of the things he was talking about was that as creatures created by God in his image and likeness, he made us what he calls revelation receivers, meaning that we are created by God to receive wisdom, to receive understanding, in particular from God. That many times when we think we have a deficiency in understanding something, that's a product of the fall. But it's not. We were created by God to be needing his revelation, his his wisdom for us to rightly understand who we are and to rightly interpret the world that we live in. Which gets to the second thing he said and and what I want to read to you. The second thing this writer said is that what distinguishes Adam and Eve and you and I then from the rest of creation is that we were created to be interpreters. People are always meaning makers. We've been created with a marvelous ability to think. We're always organizing, interpreting, and explaining what's going on inside of us and around us. We do not live life based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to our interpretation of those facts. God gave Adam and Eve the unique ability to think, gave you and I the unique ability to think, but only his words could accurately interpret their world. And so he gave a couple of illustrations, and he comes back to this, and I want to read this. He said, when we say that God designed human beings to be interpreters, we are getting to the heart of why human beings do what they do. Our thinking shapes our emotions, our sense of identity, our view of others, our agenda for the solution to our problems, and our willingness to receive wisdom from the outside. That's why we need, I want you to hear this, this is why we need a framework for generating valid interpretations that can help us respond to life appropriately. Only the words of the creator can give us that framework. That stood out to me this week, and I've read it numerous times before, but it jumped out to me this week because I realized that's exactly what Pastor James is doing in this book. Wise and tender pastor is generating a framework of valid interpretations for God's people that help us respond to what we're facing in life appropriately. 
James is writing this letter to God's people who have been persecuted and scattered throughout the region because of their faith in Christ. And he was originally writing this to help them accurately interpret the trials that they're facing based on what God has revealed about who he is and what his purposes are. And by God's grace, he's doing that very thing for us. I want you to see it real quick. I'll try to get through it as quick as I can, but he started the letter this way, and I want you just to see the flow of thought because he's gonna continue generating those interpretations for us this morning. James started by issuing this great call to God's people to count as joy the reality of the various trials that we face in this life. He began to to build behind that a, a framework of interpreting the trials that we face in this life so that we can count them as joy by reminding us of what God has revealed about himself and what God's revealed about his eternal purposes. James tells us that God is using the trials that we face in this life to refine the quality of our faith. And not only that, God is using these various trials that we face in this life to cultivate in us the virtue of steadfastness, that when steadfastness is allowed to have its full effect, God uses these various trials to bring us to completion, to wholeness, to maturity. So James is giving God's people this interpretive grid for the trial that they're facing in this life right now by saying, listen, it's worth it. It's not meaningless. The trial is worth it because God is using it to change you, to transform you, to mature you, to grow you, to refine the genuineness of your faith. It's good news. It's it's not pointless. You need to see what you're facing now through that interpretive understanding of who God is and what his purpose is. But James, being a wise pastor, knows that that's difficult for us very often. We face trials and circumstances that more times than we want to admit that we are not able to be able to interpret them rightly through the lens of what God has revealed about himself and his purposes. And so James goes back again to to remind us and encourage us of what we already know to be true about God, to give us another way of, of interpreting even that moment when we feel like we're not going to be able to understand it. He says, remember what you know to be true about God. That God isn't just, doesn't just give generously, but that God is generous in himself. He withholds nothing back from his children. He withheld not even his own son for you. So when you find yourself in these moments where you don't feel like you have the capacity to interpret the trial rightly through the lens of, of what God has revealed about himself and about his purposes, all you need to do is ask. His generosity has not changed from the moment you first believed in what he has done for you through his son. He's still just as generous. Just ask. And he'll give the wisdom that we need to interpret the circumstance rightly that we should respond appropriately. And then last week when when Rayshawn was here, he, he took us back to some Old Testament wisdom from the book of Solomon And he showed us in real time, in real life, through the life of Solomon, what it looks like to try to live life without this interpretive grid, without the wisdom from God that interprets the circumstances and and trials of life through an accurate understanding of who he is and what we are. We we learn what the Bible calls the opposite of wisdom that comes from God is, is foolishness. And that trying to interpret and respond to life appropriately apart from the wisdom of God never works. One writer, I was actually writing about this, he, he talked about this, he said, when we try to interpret life apart from the wisdom that comes from God, we're left with our own foolish thoughts. 
And he said, our foolishness looks like this. No perspective or insight or truth is believed by us to be more reliable than our own. Our foolishness convinces us that we're okay and that our rebellious and irrational choices are right and best. Trying to live life in the foolishness of our own wisdom is a rejection of our own basic nature as humans. We were never created by God to be our own source of wisdom. We were created to be dependent. This goes back to what I read earlier. Created to be dependent on the truths that God would teach us and applying those truths to our lives. Basing our interpretations of our life and the choices that we make and the behaviors that we give on his wisdom is what we were created to do. Trying to live outside of that wisdom, it just doesn't work. And we saw the futility of that last week with Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2. And Pastor James, in, in going there with God's people, he, he gives us a very specific, you may remember, example of how wisdom from God helps us to rightly interpret the circumstance we find ourselves in, that we might respond to it appropriately as he looks at how the wisdom of God transforms the way that we understand prosperity and poverty. He's been generating this valid framework of interpretations that helps us as God's people interpret our circumstances and and respond in an appropriate way. But he's not done now. He's gonna keep moving to help us rightly understand how we are to see what it is we're going through and how we are to respond to it. So I gave you enough time to find James 1, right? There was plenty of time to get there. Let's pick it up in verse 12. And what James is now going to tell God's people the interpretation that he's going to give us to help us, to bring us hope, to bring us assurance, to bring us confidence, and then that we might respond rightly to the trials that we face is simply this, the promise of God, the promise that God has given us of eternity. It makes steadfastness in trial now worth it. The promise of eternity makes steadfastness now worth it. See, the reality of it is you and I face the various trials that we face in this life very often without the lens of God's eternal promise to us. We fall prey to the notion that the here and now is really all there is, that we need to figure out how to manipulate whatever situation we're in right now to get the most out of it because we're not sure what's going to come. But James reminds God's people that there's something else to come. The eternal promise of God to his people makes steadfastness worth it right now in the midst of the trials that we face. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, lest you think he's jumped to a new subject, you can see when he talks about remaining steadfast under trial, he's just connecting back to how he started in verse two, talking about the trials of life that God uses to cultivate steadfastness in us. So in verse two, steadfastness was worth it because God is changing us in the middle of the trial. God is at work refining the genuineness of our faith, bringing us to maturity through the trial. James says that's not the end of it. There's another interpretive perspective that you need to have as you face the various trials that you face in life in a fallen world. God is actually still doing something that he will bring to completion in the end. There is going to come a day when you will see him face to face 
And you will finally be made perfectly and completely like him. There's going to be a day when the trials, they won't exist anymore. The sadness, the the tears, the pain, the betrayal, the hurt, it's going to be gone. In fact, one writer says there's going to be a day when everything you've ever suffered, every difficulty, every trial and sadness will pale into non-existence. I love that phrase. We often just say, well, pale in comparison. He says it's gonna actually pale into non-existence when it comes face to face with the eternity that you and I have promised to live with God forever and ever and ever. So you and I need to be reminded of the reality of eternity and the promise of eternity when faced with various trials in this life because if we fall prey to the lie that there really is no hope towards eternity, that it's really not going to change, that it's really not gonna come to completion, that God is not gonna finally and perfectly make us who he's promised to make us, if this is really all there is, then steadfastness and obedience in the midst of trials now isn't worth it. It's not worth it. If God's not gonna finally one day do away with all the trial, and if he's not gonna finally one day make us perfectly complete and whole in the image and likeness of his son, then right now you should figure out how to get the most out of whatever you're doing. Steadfastness and obedience in the midst of difficulty and trial would not be worth it. But the eternal promise of God is true. And the eternal promise of God is real. So James says that when you've stood the test, when you've remained steadfast, you will receive the crown of life. God will bring to completion the salvation that he's already begun, the work that he's already begun in your life. The promise of God to his people is that there is going to be a day when he will finally bring the fullness and the completion of what he's done to pass. For those who live by the grace of God through faith in Christ, God will one day say, well done. Well done. And you will see him and be made like him. And every difficulty and trial that we have ever faced will pale into non-existence. See, Pastor James does not want God's people facing the trials and difficulties of this life having forgotten about the reality of eternity. Because see, there are gonna be times when, when we face the various trials that we face in this life and we think about what he has already told us, that in those trials, God is actually refining the genuineness of our faith, he's transforming us, he's bringing us to maturity and completion, but guess what? There are times in life in the midst of trials where it's really hard to see that. It's, it's really difficult to see what God is actually doing to us through the trial to mature us. It's microscopic to our own eyes. It's like the proverbial acorn that accidentally gets buried underneath the sidewalk. No one knew it actually happened. No one even knows it's actually there. But one of the most powerful transformative forces in all of creation is actually taking place underneath that sidewalk. And no one can see it and no one knows it's happening until one day when that power that no one even saw working cracks that sidewalk 
And that little acorn that's begun to be an oak tree begins to grow through that sidewalk. See, for you and I, there are times in the midst of trials when God is doing the very thing that he promised. He's refining us and maturing us and and bringing us to completion, but we can't see it. And it's why we need to remember that even in in those times, he's not done. There's going to be a day when the trial is going to be done away with and we see him and we'll be made perfectly like him and the lens of eternity and the interpretive grid of eternity helps us in the midst of the difficulty and trial because we can't see the present transformation happening. James doesn't want God's people to face the various trials of life without the lens of God's eternal promise. But he says something really important here. Verse 12 is a, is a transition verse. It takes us back to where he started in two, but he's building his argument further. So it kind of points us ahead. And so as he wraps up verse 12, he says that God has promised this crown of life, this fullness of eternal life, the completion of what he's already started in us. He promises this to those who love him. And in doing that, James wasn't just adding something to the end of his verse. It wasn't a flippant statement. He's actually taking us somewhere. He's helping us to interpret what's going on in us in the midst of these trials. What what he just said, if you were to take that verse and do it at one point this week, take the verse and and begin to read it backwards. What you begin to find is that there is this overwhelming, pervasive, overriding love in our heart for God that we have in the midst of the various trials that we face that is reflected in the steadfastness that you see. He promised the fullness of this eternal life to those who love him and those who receive that crown are those that remain steadfast. So it's the love that, re- that is in our heart for God, this pervasive overriding love that exists in us for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be for us through his son that's reflected in steadfastness. James is is taking God's people in this argument and in this interpretation down inside to the heart, to the reality of the role our heart plays in how we understand the various trials that we face and the responses that we have to them. Alex Matier, who's a a British theologian, wrote a great commentary on on James, and, and he says this, he says, our progress towards the crown, and when he's talking about that, he's just talking about our, our, our heading towards this eternal life that God has promised, is not expedited by our powers of endurance. It doesn't matter how tenacious you are, how much grit you have, how much endurance you have. It's not expedited by your power of endurance, but by the depth and reality and pervasiveness of your love for God. And then he says something powerful in understanding what James is saying and where he's going. He says, you and I live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. When James says that God has promised this crown to those who love him, he takes us directly into the inner working of the heart and what the heart is doing in the face of these various trials. And what he's saying is that there's this pervasive love for God in us that's reflected in this steadfastness that our heart plays plays an intricate role in how we interpret what we're doing and how we respond. And and in this, James is just giving us another lens of of what we call around here a a biblical cardiology, a, a biblical understanding of the heart. If you've been here for any period of time, you've probably heard one of us talk about this. When when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not specifically talking about that biological organ in your chest that's pumping blood throughout your body. 
When the Bible talks about the heart, more often than not, it's talking about what, what it also calls the inner man. It's talking about the working of your mind that, that sets its thoughts and its intentions on something. And as your mind sets its thoughts and its intentions upon something, it begins to fan the flame of the affections of your soul. And when your mind sets itself on something and fans the flames of the affections of your soul and your mind and your soul begin to believe you have to have something, it then acts and your will responds. It's the inner working of your entire being. Your mind conceives of something that you have to have. It fans and flame the affections of your soul, which then drive the actions of your body, of your being. That's how the heart works, which is why the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 4.23 will say, above all else, guard your heart because everything that you do flows from it. That's where James is going. This is the wisdom that James is operating under. Your response to the various trials in life is ultimately coming from what is overruling and overriding your heart. There's a pervasive love for God in the midst of these various trials that reflects itself in steadfastness. But there are times when it doesn't. There are times when we face the various trials in life and we don't respond in what could fall under the umbrella of steadfastness. We don't respond in a way that reflects a confidence and assurance in who God is as he's revealed himself to be to us, most specifically through his son, and it reflects a more sinful response to the various things that we face in this life. James knows that. He's a human. He lives in a fallen world. He's a pastor. He's probably had more cups of first century Starbucks with parishioners who are facing the ways that they have failed to respond to trials in life and need to know why and what to do. And that's where he goes here. That's why it's so helpful. James brings us back to the role that our hearts, our loves play in how we remain steadfast and how we interpret the life that we're living and how we interpret the way we're supposed to respond. Verse 13, listen to what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is one of those passages, again, and I want to remind you as often as I can, that, that often we, we read, we look at, even interpreters and commentators argue as to whether or not this fits in with anything else James is saying. It's one of the reasons why people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, because it sounds like he's just jumping from topic to topic to topic, each one of them very good, very insightful, very principled, very helpful. It's how most of us learn the book of James, bits and pieces coming out like this. But this is actually just a continued thought of what James has already been saying. And the challenge for us comes in the way that we translate some of the words, if you were to go on your, on your computer, and this is what I do, again, don't think anything about it when we talk about what languages the Bible are written. I use a computer. If you were to go look at this in the original language, what you will actually see when you read through this is that the word that James uses in verse 2 and in verse 12 that gets translated as a trial is just the noun form of the same word that's translated in its verb form in verses 13, 14, and 15 as tempted. Trial is the noun form of the same word that's translated tempted in 13, 14, and 15. 
So the word has a very layered and nuanced meaning depending upon the context in which it's used. So the context for trial, the way it's translated in verses 2 and 12, is an external affliction, an external challenge, prosperity, poverty, sickness, health, something that we have to respond to. That's why that word is translated as trial. And James has already told us the purpose of those trials is to refine the quality of our faith and refine the depth of our sincerity and our love for God. That's the sense in how it's been used as trial. And verse 12 says that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under that trial. Now in verse 13, he's gonna take the same word and use it as a verb form, talking again about another type of trial, so to speak, but it's translated temptation. And when it's translated temptation, it's referring to an internal pull towards sin. Our response to trials is to count them as joy. That's what he's called us to. Our response to these internal temptations is to be resistance. The result of the trials in verses 2 through 12 is maturity and endurance and ultimately the crown of life. And as we'll see, these temptations that we indulge and give into will ultimately bring death. This is what he's setting up. So what James is reminding God's people is simply this. Trials around us can prompt all manner of temptations within us. You see, God will allow trials into our life. And his intention in allowing these trials into our life is to refine the genuineness of our faith, to grow us through the trials, to change us through the trials, to continuously, continuously bring us back to an awareness of our need for his wisdom that we might rightly interpret the trial and respond to it appropriately. But you and I, and this is what James is concerned about, you and I must never fall prey to the lie that in these trials God is messing with us, that he's toying with us, that he's out to destroy us, that he's setting us up that we might sin, that he's gonna see what happened. He just wants to see what's, what's gonna happen when we face it. That's not what's happening here. God will never tempt you to sin. That's what James is saying in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted. When you face this internal pull to respond to one of the various trials that we face in life in a sinful way, that God is tempting you to do that. Because God can't be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Now there's a word of encouragement here. There's actually a couple of them here. But one is simply this, there are some people that are here that tend to be overwhelmed with worry and concern by the presence of temptation in their own life. You're particularly sensitive to it. You feel like you have just a a crushing level of temptation and maybe because of the presence of temptation in your heart, you're not remaining steadfast. Maybe you're, you're not doing what God has called you to do. And, and James is very subtly just saying, look, it's not if you face temptation in the midst of a trial. It's not if you're tempted in heart to respond to these various trials in ways that do not glorify the Lord. It's when. I mean, temptation is a natural part of life in a fallen world. Jesus was no stranger to temptation. In fact, he was tempted in every way as you and I are. James is encouraging those who would be predisposed to be overwhelmed by the presence of temptation and fear. No, it's normal, but you need to understand how it works and what's happening that you might not give into it. And in particular, what he's, 
What he's trying to point out is something that we wouldn't readily just admit to. We would read what he's saying and go, well, that's not me. That must be someone else. Maybe that was a first century problem. But what James is trying to acknowledge and to help us through is that when we face temptation to respond to the various trials of life in a way that would not reflect steadfastness, in a way that would not reflect obedience or godliness, when we respond to, tempted to respond to trials in, in a more sinful way, the, res, the reflexive response of our hearts is to not take responsibility for it. To go, well, that temptation and, and that temptation that gave birth to that sin, it wasn't my fault. And in fact, I think it was God's fault. After all, isn't he sovereign? If he allowed the trial into my life, then if I was tempted to respond to it in a sinful way, isn't it his fault because he let it in? No, we would never actually say that, would we? Not many of us would, would, would just say that outright, but we say it in a thousand different ways. We've been saying it ever since the beginning of the story. When God came to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three, Adam said to God, what have you done? And what Adam said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You gave her to me. She gave me the fruit, I ate it, but you gave her to me. If you hadn't given her to me, she wouldn't have given me the fruit and I wouldn't have eaten it. You gave it to me, it's your fault. Well, God came to Eve. What is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. If we can't pin the blame on God for why we're tempted and why we sin, then we'll blame someone else or something else. If my spouse was simply more present, I wouldn't be so easily irritated. If my roommates or my coworkers were easier to get along with, they wouldn't always bring out the worst in me then. If my boss wasn't so demanding, I wouldn't have to lie so often. If my parents would have only fill in the blank. If my pastors were simply more, then I wouldn't be so angry, then I wouldn't be so bitter, then I wouldn't be so jealous, whatever it may be. And in all the ways that we say it, and in all the ways that we try to pass it off, what we're actually saying is this anger, this bitterness, this envy, this jealousy, this lying, this spite, whatever the response is that is sinful, we're saying it's happening because you let this trial into my life. It's your fault. We might not just sit there and say, well, I'm blaming God for the temptation that's in me that's leading me to sin, but we say if you hadn't given me the trial, then I wouldn't do it. James is concerned that we not be deceived. God does not tempt us to sin. Rather, verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? What's it say? I was real quiet. I know there's not a lot of people in here right now, but you can say it louder than that. Whose desire? His own desire. It's our own desires that are underneath these temptations. The trial might be the occasion for the temptation and the sin, but it's not the cause of it. The example I was trying to come up with, and I don't know how good it is, but simply this. If one of my kids came home with an exam they took in school with a big giant F on it, and we talked to them about it, and they said, well, if the teacher hadn't tested me, I wouldn't have failed. Well, no, the test was the occasion for the failure, but it wasn't the cause of it. 
The cause of the failure was that you didn't learn what you were supposed to learn. But you and I do that 10,000 times over. The trial is not the cause of the temptation. It might be the occasion for the temptation, but it's not the cause. The cause are the desires in our heart. And that word is a word we talk about around here all the time. Desire gets translated in different ways in your Bibles because the translators are trying to help us, trying to put the weight and the freight of what's behind that word in a way that we can understand. But the word behind desire there is the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia. You'll see it translated in different ways in your Bibles. And what it's trying to point out is that there are over desires in our heart. There are natural desires that exist in our heart that take an inordinate place in our heart. They become over-desires, disordered desires, disordered loves in our heart. And it's these disordered loves that tempt us to respond in sinful ways to the various trials that we face in this life. We have all kinds of naturally good desires in our heart that when we try to extract any level of meaning, significance, and purpose from things that are only supposed to be found in who God is for us, most specifically through his son, Jesus, when we try to take anything that we're supposed to find in him and find it in these things, they become over-desires, disordered loves, epithumia. Examples that hit us most specifically, just to give you an example. It's perfectly right and good to desire a healthy, strong, physical body. When that desire becomes a disordered desire, when that love becomes a disordered love, and we find our lives driven by the image that we have of our body, and the various body images that can come, it becomes a disordered love. It's good and right to have strong friendships with people. But when we try to extract meaning and significance and purpose out of those friendships, anything we try to take from those things that's meant to be only found in God and who he is for us through Jesus ultimately destroys the very thing that we want. It becomes an over-desire. Good things our heart makes into main and ultimate things ultimately become destructive things. That's what he's talking about. James Smith, who's a philosopher at Calvin College, he, he wrote a book that I, I think I'll probably quote every single week from here out in James. It's so good. It's, you are what you love. But he says this, and I think it's really helpful to understand what's behind what James is saying. He says, what makes us who we are is what we love. Our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or love as ultimate. What at the end of the day gives us a sense of purpose understanding, orientation to our being in the world. So anything that becomes a way towards meaning and purpose and significance above and beyond who God is for us, that's an epithumia, a disordered love. The Old Testament would talk about this and they would call it spiritual adultery. Our heart is enticed by things other than who God is for us. We spent the entire Advent season going through that. Go back and listen to the series in the book of Hosea. That's what it was all about. James is saying this, and he, he's going to give us an illustration to try to help us. He's actually going to give us two. So half of you will probably like the first one, half will probably like the second one. The first illustration James uses is a fishing illustration. He says these over-desires, these epithumia, these disordered loves, they lure us and they entice us. You know if you've ever been fishing that the purpose of the worm on the hook is to hide the hook. 
It's to get down in the water and a fish to see it and go, ooh, that's pleasing to the eye. I like that. That could be satisfying to the body. Let me go get that. And the whole purpose of the worm is to actually hide the hook. And James is saying that these over-desires, they lure us, they bait us, they entice us, they promise something to us that our mind has set its desire on, our affections have been fanned to to the place we think we have to have, and we take the bait. And we're hooked. And we're ensnared. And even worse, what's even worse about it? We baited the hook. It's our own desire. We baited the hook and snared ourselves. That's how silly it actually is. But that's what happens in the heart. But most people, you know, there's a lot of people that don't go fishing anymore. Changes the illustration for those that may never fished. Look at verse 15. He says, these epi desires, these disordered loves, he said that they, they conceive. Now he's moving to a birth illustration. They conceive. When we give in to these over-desires, take the bait of these over-desires. When we're ensnared by these over-desires, we indulge them. These over-desires give birth to sin. Now we respond in ways appropriately. Now we think we have to have it from, the way, from our bodies, and so we begin to do things in our life to pursue the meaning and the significance we think is found in looking or feeling a certain way. These over-desires, when indulged, they give birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So here's the thing for you and I. I, I know it's true of my own life, and so I would assume it's true of a lot of other people in here. When we even recognize the presence of these disordered loves in our heart, so let's just say we realize that they exist, and let's just say by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we realize that we are in the presence of one of these over-desires in our heart, and now we have to respond one of the temptations that we have to respond and we often fall prey to is simply this, if I just indulge it a little bit, then the desire will go away, right? I'm not making this a sinful analogy. I'm trying to make it a practical analogy, but we definitely desperately want something sweet. I don't want to eat the whole donut. If I just take a bite of it, the desire for the rest of it will go away. Nothing sinful about the donut, but we think about desires like this. If I just give into it a little bit, then it will go away. James does not want us to be deceived by that. That is a deadly mistake. When these disordered loves, these over-desires, when they're indulged, when we're seduced by them, a natural process occurs, conception occurs. They will bring forth sin. And here's the thing, sin takes on a life of its own and reproduces and brings forth death. When we take friendships that we're supposed to have and they're meant to be for our joy and for the refinement of our faith and for the encouragement of one another and we make them over-desires, epi-desires, disordered loves and try to suck out of them the purpose and the satisfaction that is meant to be found in confidence in who we are because of what God has done from us, we ultimately end up destroying the very thing we wanted and we needed. It brings forth death. We will find ourselves in more situations than we would ever want to admit, thinking things, wanting things, desiring things, and now doing things that we would have never thought conscionable before. James says, don't be deceived, beloved, brothers, family, friends, don't be deceived. 
Don't let the over-desire hook you. Don't let the over-desire deceive you and entice you. It's promising something it can't give. Don't take the bait. Don't be deceived. God is not toying with you in these trials. The trials that God allows into your life are for your good. They're for the genuineness, the refining of your faith, the production of steadfastness, the cultivation of maturity. Don't be deceived. He's not messing with you. But don't be deceived about what's really going on in your heart. Don't be deceived by these over-desires. Verse 16 is another hinge verse for James. He looks backwards. Don't be deceived as to the nature of what's really going on in this. But then he looks forward too. Don't be deceived and believe a lie about who God is. See, James knows how easily you and I give in to our over-desires. So James doesn't want us to walk away without hope. I mean, it, it rightly interpreted everything he said is hope-giving. The trials aren't meaningless. God's using them to refine us. He's using them to cultivate us. They're, they're not meaningless. As we remain steadfast, we, he will finish what he started. We will receive the crown of life. And when we can't seem to rightly interpret, don't, don't fret, have hope. God will give us the wisdom that we actually need. Look, have hope. God is not messing with you in the trials to toy with your emotions. He doesn't tempt you to sin. Look, good news, the problem is you. Now you know the problem. It's your heart. James has given all kinds of hope, but lest you hear that without hope, he doesn't want you to walk away with no hope. How can we escape the lure of our own desire? How can we escape the deadly lure of our own epi-desires? Well, James says, since God is not the source of our temptations, he is the source of our triumph over the temptations. Look at how he kind of brings this to a close. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect thing that you need to interpret the circumstance of your life and to remain steadfast and obedient in it is coming to you graciously from your heavenly Father whose generosity is inexhaustible. That's what he's saying. Take some time this week and think about every single word of what he just said and let it blow your mind. Every, just take a day and think about the word every. Everything that you could ever possibly need to interpret and respond appropriately to the life that you live, God gives you. There's no end to it. Every doesn't mean that you're gonna exhaust the resource at some point. It means that everything you could ever need, he gives. He holds nothing back. Take a day to think about perfect. I mean, just think about how he builds from good to perfect. It's as though the gifts that God gives his people continue to get better and better. But that word perfect, it means he gives you exactly what you need. The word itself implies that what he gives, it meets the mark. What he gives fits the objective perfectly. Our need, our need is for our heart to love him above everything, to rightly interpret the trials that we face in light of who he is and what his purposes are and what that means about us so that we can respond with steadfastness and obedience. He gives us what we need perfectly to do that. And in giving us every good and perfect thing that we need, his generosity is changeless. 
James just said you're never gonna come to him in need and find out that now he's unwilling or unavailable to help you. He doesn't change like that. The stars, the the heavenly lights that he created, the glory and the beauty of the heavens, everything up there is subject to change. It's pattern shift, the luminosity changes, but he's not subject to change like that. In fact, Spurgeon said it better than I'll ever say it. Spurgeon said that God never changes his position. He never alters either the fact or the intensity of his outshining goodness. How sweet is that? Unless that doesn't get you excited and give you any level of confidence and hope and assurance in interpreting and facing trials, James ends by reminding you of one particularly good thing that God has given you that God has given his children. Of his own will, look at verse 18. Of his own will, of God's own will, having made his own decision, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own decision, he brought you forth. It's going back to that birth picture again, isn't he? Of God's own decision, he gave you new life. He brought you forth. And I love what he says, by the word of truth. That phrase is used four times in the New Testament. Once is here in James, and in two other times, Ephesians and Colossians, Paul defines this word of truth for you, lest we get confused about what he's talking about. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that you've heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation. To the Colossian church in Colossae, Paul says, on the account of the hope laid up for us in heaven, which you heard about in advance by the word of truth, the gospel. James is saying there is something that God has given you, something perfect and something good. He has given you new life, new birth through the word of the gospel, through the word of his son, through the word and the truth. He has given you exactly what you need. God set the affections of his heart on you to bring you new life, to change you. He set his affection on you and he gave you his son. His son lived the life that you were created by God to live and then willingly laid his life down on a cross to die for the price, the life that you and I choose to live instead. And in between, he faced temptation just like you and I did. And where we fail to remain steadfast and rightly interpret the various trials of our life and we respond sinfully, he never did. Two times in particular, once in a wilderness and once in a garden before the cross, he was tempted in a way that you and I can't conceive of and he was given the temptation to take the easy way out. And he never did. He went to the cross that you and I, by the grace of God, through faith in him, might be given new life. He faced the temptation, and he did not give in, and he did it for you. He died in your place for your sins, and when you and I begin to see him again and again and again for who he is and what he has done, that desire begins to grow, that glory begins to grow, and what Chalmers says is the expulsive power of a new affection begins to happen. And we begin to see the other desires for what they are. And the love for who he is and what he has done continues to grow. James wants God's people to be reminded that we're ultimately going to triumph over temptation. 
But the source of that triumph isn't within us. It's not our wisdom, it's not our grit, it's not our determination, it's God himself. It's this word of truth, it's the gospel, it's his son that has saved us, that brings us new life, that gives us new birth, that keeps us, that renews us, that changes us, that secures us, and that assures us because of who Christ has been for us that you and I, when facing various trials, we don't have to live in limbo as to whether or not one day we're gonna receive the crown of life. See, he's given us every good and perfect thing we need so that we can interpret and respond rightly. And the perfect gift that he has given us ultimately is his own son. So we know when we don't, he's given us everything we need to respond rightly through repentance and faith in him. And we don't have to wonder in the midst of trials when we fail or when we succeed, when we remain steadfast or when we don't, whether or not we're going to receive the crown of life because we know with certainty that his perfect and good gift, his son wore the crown of death on his head so that you and I could wear the crown of life in eternity. Every good and perfect gift that we need to rightly understand the world we live in and respond inappropriately and every good and perfect gift we need when we fail to do it, God has given it to us and he's given it to us through his son. And this morning we get to celebrate that and respond to that as his people as we receive communion this morning, as we take bread remembering his body broken in our place for our sins, we dip it in the cup of juice remembering his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sin, it was because he remained steadfast for us. He remained steadfast on the cross for every moment that you and I failed to remain steadfast. We get to remember that and celebrate that this morning knowing that because of him, not only do we have new life, but we have hope and assurance that one day we'll hear, well done. Well done. It's the good news that you and I have the privilege of reminding each other of every single day that will cultivate this overriding love for God in our heart that will reflect itself in steadfastness and obedience. And it's that overriding love that gives us the capacity by his very grace and spirit to resist the overwhelming disordered loves that arise in our heart. This is what God has done for us through his son. It's what we get to respond to this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll have a chance to respond. Father, thank you that you have given us exactly what we needed. We could never figure out what it was that we needed, but you've given us every perfect and good thing. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit this morning to see your glory in the face of your Son, to find this word of truth beautiful and glorious for the first time or the first time in a long time that we might be able to remain steadfast and obedient. Lord, we need your work and your wisdom to help us to interpret our life and our circumstances in a way that we can respond to appropriately. Well, that's a miracle that comes from you and we ask that you would do it for us this morning for your glory in Jesus' name, for our joy. Amen.